protect themselves. Um, we <clears> also <throat> look at guardianship. We're listening to you know, some Geometry of Universal Connectedness with Adam Apollo. That's Geometry of Universal Connectedness with Adam Apollo. Thank you for tuning in to the Christopher Governor on the Campaign Trail Show. And uh, we're doing a bit of uh, Gaia upliftment this morning. <clears throat> Valuable, something important. Uh, uh, and here we are talking on... about fundamental field that is taught in all mystery schools was cut out of modern physics. This field follows the same geometric principles that enabled the ancient peoples to engage with magic and is the same geometry that creates the fundamental forces of our universe. As a teenager, Adam Apollo had a cosmic epiphany and saw the universal connectedness of everything. So he took a deep dive studying physics to discover the ways to understanding this connection. What he found is geometry of the field that connects everything. Instructor, host, George Norrie, featuring Adam Apollo, copyrights, February 19, 2020. Okay, let's pull up. <coughs> pull up. By the way, I woke up this morning, and uh, in my dream I saw a UFO, but it turned out to be just like a bunch of party doors going to the moon. of Beyond Belief with our special guest, Adam Apollo. He's been a physicist, systems architect, designer, developer for nearly 20 plus years, founding several educational and technology oriented companies and organizations. He's very involved in that. He has been a featured speaker on future technology and unified physics at the White House, the Whoa. United Nations, and conferences too, all around good old planet Earth. Adam, welcome to Beyond Belief. <clears throat> Thank you so much, George. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. What a lot of history <laughs> for your young age. Yeah, you might say that. People were saying that to me in my early 20s, too. But um, it's, it's just that time. And right now, so much is converging so quickly. We have to be on our game. It's the Renaissance. What is it about physics that captured your uh, imagination? The Renaissance. <sighs> well, I knew from the time I was very young that a lot of the things I heard in school were lies. <laughs> and I I was being told this story about reality, a story about how we're coming into existence and what these things are and what this body is. And I just felt like so much of it was not true. And I became instantly extremely interested Maybe in nonsense. how things actually work. <clears throat> how does the mind actually work? How is it possible that someone could look at you from across the room and you feel it tingling yes, on the back of it. your neck. Like, there's no physics explaining how someone looking at you could tingle your neck or burn your ears when they're talking about you. So I became fascinated with these phenomena and wanted to explore them more deeply. When I was in school, and I used to sit behind people in class, yeah. I would do exactly that just to see <laughs> if it would work. Like I would them. stare at their head to make them turn around. Yeah. And I just did it. And all of a sudden, maybe a minute later, the person would just turn and look yeah. and look back. Yeah. And I went, it works. It does. I didn't know how or why, but I knew it did. Yeah, I used to kind of create a little powerful pointer finger and just like poke at one of my friends across the room. You know, especially trying to get someone's attention. You know, yep. Shouting doesn't I work. I get frustrated when I look at a yep. girl and she never turn around. <laughs> it's yeah. not working. Oh, yeah, that's always rough. <laughs> now, this awakening that has occurred for you, 
was it an epiphany mm. or was it something that developed over time? The initial big click happened one afternoon. And in that afternoon, I was hanging out with a friend. We were philosophizing, asking questions about these things um, and tried doing some different experiments. Like, could you feel it if you look at your hand uh -huh. or if I look at his hand? Um, and then it adapted to this little experiment where we put our fingers together like this. And I very slowly separated my fingertips, looking at the space between them. And suddenly I saw <clears throat> this streamy fluid between my fingertips and and i could feel it like a vibration yeah. going into my fingers almost like a charge of energy yeah and i as a 15 year old kid i was like oh my god i found the force yeah the force is real right now you know <laughs> and and so but you know a lot of people i think have that kind of experience but for me i developed so much of a scientific inquiry to my mind in the way that i was exploring <laughs> things that i couldn't stop there I, I hid objects on the other side of the room and had my friend blindfolded try to locate them with his hand or me doing it with mine uh, we tried blindfolded martial arts how fast could we go you know um and the more i explored that was this fast, by field way. thank you i can go much faster um the more I explored this field, the more I realized that it explained so many of the missing pieces in my school studies, in geology, in astrophysics, um, and provided uh, a groundwork for a much deeper understanding of how consciousness is related to space-time. Is there a science behind it, or is it something else? There is absolutely a science behind it. and. I would love to explore that with you. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Because a lot of people would uh, scarf over it. They sure. wouldn't even think there's a science behind it. They, they would talk about it being supernatural or paranormal yeah. or not existent. That's right. It's changed a little bit uh, more recently because of some of the Heisenberg interpretation of quantum mechanics. And this is not Heisenberg from Breaking Bad. No, this is not Heisenberg from Breaking Bad, you know. Um, and uh, not a giant balloon either, which some people confuse that, you know, but the, the interpretation of quantum mechanics that's become very popular, which I actually disagree with, and I can explain okay. that later, is the idea that something is either a particle or it's a wave, and we don't know which it is, and at some point it's going to collapse into one or the other. Uh -huh. You know, this guy, uh, Schrodinger, did this whole the cat thought experiment with the cat, right? And the cat's either alive or dead. And then he makes up this experiment to show that this interpretation is ridiculous. Right. He thought it was crazy. So did Einstein. Schrodinger's cat. And yet we use it all the time. As an right? example. Yeah. And, you know, but popularly, uh, the idea that something is only becomes what it is because we put a conscious focus on it that does connect to the metaphysics whoops whoopsie daisy that does connect to the metaphysics of the mind that is something that's applicable which is a Well, interestingly enough, if 
you have the same kind of double slit experiment and instead of just shooting beams of light you fill it with a fluid and you have these little vibrating beads that you shoot through the fluid well the beads are a particle but they're also creating a waveform and so as the particle moves, it makes a wave on the background, but also this one point does hit the wall. And so if space-time is actually this superfluid medium with vibrating points inside of it, suddenly you don't have either or anymore. And it also works to apply consciousness to this because you realize that consciousness is a wave propagator. We are putting out beams of waves all the, all time. the time. You have a project called the Guardian Alliance. Yeah. Let's take a look at this and have you explain a little bit more about sure, it. Sure, of course. I'm Adam Apollo, founder and president of Superluminal Systems, the chief architect of the Resonance Academy, and now the Guardian Alliance. I was doing workshops, traveling around the world for many years, and teaching small groups of people about how to cultivate your energy, how to work with yourself, face your inner challenges, and become more aware of all that you are, so that you can give your deepest gift in this world. And that's what I've done here, is I've created a platform for your teachings to come forward when you're ready. And for those of us who have been cultivating this work for a very long time, to share some of the secrets of reality with you and show you what it means to be a guardian and to forge an alliance, an alliance for this planet. This world needs us right now. It's time to bring our truth. It is time to step forward as guardians of this planet, of its people, of all the life on it. It's time to unveil who we are. It is time to honor what is essential to honor. That is life. And that is you. And that is your truth. Whoever you are, welcome. So when you talk about guardians, as you illustrated in that clip, it's kind of like the watchdog of the planet. But what exactly do they do? What do you expect us to do? Well, it comes from, you know, multiple perspectives on what guardianship actually is. Uh, we think about a parent or guardian being someone who, you know, watches over a child and sure. is able to make decisions for a child who's incapable of making their own decision to protect themselves. Um, we also look at guardianship as protecting, you know, something valuable, something important. Uh, and here we are on this amazing, gorgeous, beautiful planet. The planet is undergoing massive amounts of impact from human culture and from pollution, from the way that we're running our technologies. Absolutely. And when we look at the thinking and the minds of so many of the people on the planet, we realize that because of the American way or because of whatever, you know, this well, the is Chinese way, way. Chinese way, whatever you want to call it, you know, you got school, you got work, you got to do this thing, you got to make this money, you got to thing, and then you got to make enough and you go buy a house and you all this. Our minds are conditioned into these very small little streams and we suddenly realize we've lost the freedom of thinking and choice to be able to make decisions that are going to be good for everyone. And so why do we need guardians? Well, we need guardians to reflect back to people and say, wow, you know what, you're, you're not perhaps seeing 
the full impact of the choices that you're making. But if you were willing to look at these pieces, you might be able to see that this is creating harm or this is creating good. And so protecting the destiny of the human race, you know, protecting the children for generations to come, that is the role of the guardian. The guardian is not there to make decisions for anyone, but instead to empower the consciousness to be able to see the potential future that we can have in which we're thriving and happy and abundant. Can the individual be a guardian or must it be the masses? I think every individual has a responsibility to be a guardian to some extent. Not every individual will choose that responsibility. And so we need people who are willing to take that responsibility and to stand forward for those future generations and for our planet. You're a physicist. What is the unified theory of physics? What's that mean? Yeah, so um, I do this work uh, since I was a teenager um, that I call the Unified Harmonic Matrix. And it emerged from a vision in which I saw the interconnectedness of everything. As a teenager. As a teenager. That's remarkable. And I started doing deep dives into physics in order to see if somehow there were keys to this whole unified theory that I was uh, that was emerging from inside of me inside of the existing physics world and mainly what I found was a lot of scattered puzzle pieces mm -hmm. that hadn't been put together fragmented everywhere and all of the cracks all the fragments were basically the pieces that were missing this understanding of this fundamental field what we may call the ether or the vital force prana chi you go to any mystery tradition and this is what i did as a teenager when i first discovered this and all of these different mystery traditions are all talking about this field and yet it was completely missing and what i was seeing was modern physics and I eventually realized that it was actually cut out of physics around the turn of the 1900s. You're familiar with the work of physicist Nassim Hadamim. I am. So he's a good, good guy. Uh, we have a guy in documentary that he's been included in called yeah. Black Hole, where he talks about this theory of unified physics. That's right. everything and everyone everywhere. This question has baffled physicists and scholars for centuries. Nobel Prize winner Albert Einstein came up with the most respected physics equations, but his dream of finding the unified solution eluded even him. Where should one look for the answer to this universal puzzle? To the past? The future? The ends of the cosmos or beyond? Or inward? Is the answer inside a particle? A proton? Does our consciousness affect the nature of reality? Maybe clues have been left for us throughout the centuries, encrypted in sacred icons and symbols. Who among us can unravel the mysteries? Einstein was a technical assistant at the patent office when in his spare time, he cranked out some of the most remarkable theories. Theories that remain the crux of classical physics today. Einstein once said, any intelligent fool can make things bigger and more complex. It takes a touch of genius and a lot of courage to move in the opposite direction. What'd you think of Einstein, Adam? You know, there's something about Einstein that most people don't know. When he published his theory on special relativity, 
it supposedly wiped out the need for the luminiferous ether. Mm -hmm. This uh, sort of more metaphysical basis for the arising of all forces that was known for thousands of years if you go into the past uh, Mickelson and Morley's experiment supposedly proved it didn't exist all they, all they had was a tabletop laser you know and huh. they were trying to detect if you could feel the ether moving you know through the laser as it's spinning around the earth and of course they weren't thinking about the fact that maybe the ether is moving with the surface of the earth right and then Einstein supposedly disproved it and then the next thing you know he releases general relativity and in general relativity he's describing space-time as a fabric and as that fabric warps and weaves light goes with it and it was his teacher Lorenz who came to him and he said Einstein you know you just prove the ether exists right <laughs> and he's like oh you're right and so he does this whole paper um, on the ether and in it he says you cannot have the theory of general relativity without an ether. Space-time must have fundamental mechanical qualities. But you know what? Everybody ignored it. Why? Nobody publicized it. Scientists still they to this day don't it? talk about it. Because somehow this association with the ether Is associated right? it with spirituality. And he was right. Space-time is an ether. It's what it is. It's literally a fundamental fabric woven of what I call a, like a light lattice. It's a, a high tensegrity lattice made of light. What is vacuum catastrophe? The vacuum catastrophe is something the Sim talks about a lot. Um, it's a point in the mid-1900s where basically we were using two plates to see if we could measure how much energy is in completely empty space. And what we found was that there's such a gargantuanly large amount of energy there that physicists couldn't explain it, and they had to renormalize all the equations. They can't seem to explain much. No, it's true. Um, and to be fair, there's a lot of really great physicists out there. And, uh, you know, when I was in high school, um, the work of Lee Smolin on loop quantum gravity helped me to uh, gain some traction in understanding that space-time itself is a geometric structure. Mm -hmm. But he was missing, you know, their, their form of space-time, and we see this a lot in magazines these days, this kind of wobbly, foamy space-time that's just all crazy. And I thought, this is not the way it actually looks. It's got to have some kind of pattern or geometry because everything that we see arising around us from plants to animals to the pattern of the galaxy flowing, all of these things have fundamental geometric patterns inside of them. The fire ratio and the hexagonal lattice and all of these things. And so I thought, well, what would make the most sense is if everything was triangular and if there was a natural balance in the triangular structure of space um, and I started thinking about how space permutates. What would make it flat? What would make it curve and make gravity happen? What would make it spin? And I started working out the fundamentals of how gravity and curvature happen through these pentagonal intersections. Space-time equilibrium happens through a hexagonal lattice and spin happens through this sort of seven-pointed lattice and some some time into that exploration i came across buckminster fuller's work and i realized uh, dome, right? that's right and i realized that bucky 
absolutely had all these basic geometric permutations worked out. And he even defined the fundamental sort of force interaction that would make sense to explain these space-time fields. It's called tensegrity. It's when something is pushing apart because it's vibrating and also pulling together in the same way. Of course, he was thinking about it architecturally. You know, put this line over here and this line over here and it has to have enough of a push and pull and it'll stay taut, right? But if you think about it in a field of energy, then you've got these vibrating fields pushing themselves all apart from each other while also attracted, pulling together at the same time. And you end up with these perfect balance hexagonal and pentagonal lattices made of equilateral triangles or tetrahedrons, as Nassim does, you know, speaks about in a lot of his work. Adam, Einstein talks about the universe and its curvature. Yeah. And explain to us what that means, where basically... If you and I were holding a sheet mm -hmm. and a third person put a bowling ball in the middle of that sheet, mm -hmm. it would have some kind of wave curvature to it. Yeah. What does that all mean? Well, the sheet analogy is a rough one because it's just dealing with uh, what would we be seen as like a two-dimensional surface. Mm -hmm. And so we don't really get a sense of how the gravitational field is moving around an object from that perspective. We have to think about it more as if you have this curved space-time that's forming an object, whether that's a proton or many, many protons forming a sun, and you have all the space-time around that central node moving with it together. So the whole field around it is moving. In other words, all the planets are moving in the space-time field, which is all moving around the sun. This also explains away dark matter and dark energy when you apply it to galactic And space. it happens around every star. Around every star. Yeah. It, it, literally the entire galaxy is a field that is moving in a whirlpool. And all of the stars are smaller whirlpools. But the whirlpools are not going down, so to speak. They're going inward towards these toroidal structures of energy, which we call stars and planets. If they go downward, mm -hmm. do they create black holes? There's a point where basically what we understand of a black hole is that there's a point where light can no longer escape the curvature of space-time. Um, but when we apply that idea <clears throat> to both cosmological and quantum scales, what we begin to see is that uh, there is there's a point of infinite curvature anytime you follow curved space-time all the way in to the center of an object. In other words, if space-time is curved in a proton, and a lot of my work is specifically on the geometry of the proton, and uh, I share a lot of the geometric forces and dynamics around the proton in a course that I'm releasing called Quantum Geometry in the Resonance Academy. And I deal with uh, way more dynamics around the proton than have been covered so far in any of the work by Nassim or others. And I'm talking about the torsion field of the proton and that as you move in towards the center, curvature gets tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter until literally you're dealing with a point. And at the point, you know, you're surrounded by what's called an excavated dodecahedron. 
and you have these 12 vector lines coming out, which, you know, Bucky loved to point to in his domes, those 12 spots where there's the fives. He was totally right. Um, But as you go in, curvature becomes infinite. And and as curvature becomes a full sphere going in around an object like a proton, light going into that event horizon can't escape it anymore. And so this is why I believe Nassim is right about the fact that protons are black holes. But I think we can also extend that idea and say that the entire universe is full of black holes. We are probably in a black hole. We are black holes. And basically everything is made of a relationship between this sort of infinite singularities and these distributed exchanges of vibration. Well, as we talk about geometry and Nassim Hadamin again, this is his explanation. In general, we could define our society in two ways. We've got people that have a tendency to be very spiritual, and these people tend to think in terms of infinities, that infinite potential, and all this stuff. And on the other hand, we have scientific people that tend to think in finite systems, closed systems that have very defined boundaries. And the two don't necessarily agree. And I think that at this point, this has to come together. And in a very simple way, I'm going to show you geometrically that infinities and finite system are actually complementary. If we take the boundary of a circle and we define that as our finite space, now that circle could be a sphere. And we divide that circle so that uh, a triangle is formed in it, an equilateral triangle in this case. Now the universe is polarized. Everything in the universe seems to spin, so spin produces polarity, so we would have a reverse triangle at the same time. As soon as we do this, now we've created a new boundary condition at the next fractal level down, the next iteration down. Now notice that these new boundaries all are centered around a very specific center. That is, each of the boundary defines a very specific structure in space-time, a very specific coordinate in space-time. And so each of the boundary could be defined as a very specific set of information. Now I can continue to divide the space to produce new boundary conditions. Now I've got another iteration down and another set of information. Now I can continue to do this and create new boundaries again. And at this point, you can imagine that if I give this to my computer, it could zoom in bring it back up, continue to divide the space, zoom in, bring it back up, continue to divide the space, and it could do this to infinity. However, I would never, ever, ever, ever exceed that first boundary I've produced for myself. So here, I've embedded infinite amount of divisions, infinite amount of information within the confine of a finite space. So, in very simple terms here, I've shown to you that infinities and finite structures are complementary. 
that within the confine of what appears to be a finite space can be embedded infinite amount of information. And if this is true, this simple concept could change all of our concepts of physics, including our concepts of our relationship to the universe. Adam, give us the Cliff Note version of what Nassim was talking about. Yeah, well, he's talking about fractals. Um, that basically within any geometric boundary condition, you can have infinite recursion. Mm -hmm. So it's possible to have infinite energy within a limited amount of space. Of course, when we're dealing with uh, concepts like that, it's, it's in the mind. This is a mental practice. While when we're dealing with the structures of space-time, we have sort of a different level of dynamic going on because we're actually dealing with energy in tensegrity with itself and in relationship with itself. A lot of the geometry that Nassim talks about and that you know you even have here on the Gaia Cup, and it's all talking about this hexagonal lattice, right? right? The, the triangles forming a hexagon. And the Seems hexagonal like lattice, thing, it's it? very universal. And you know, even the art crystal that I'm wearing is a miniature tetrahedron. Mm -hmm. um, these these uh, hexagonal lattices and the tetrahedral matrix and the 64 tetrahedral matrix, which I'm sure Nissan will talk about more, um, are all mapping space-time in total equilibrium. And that equilibrium uh, that is generalized to the universe is the reason why electromagnetic waves, light, can travel across the entire universe without restriction. But space-time is not in total equilibrium. And in fact, it's rare to find that geometry at scale. Is there a conflict here? Because it's not a conflict. It's just that in order to fully understand the dynamics of space-time, it's important to understand that space-time must curve. And in order to have curvature, you can't just have hexagons. You can think of it like um, you've got and they're forming their, their whole lattice of heck. By the way, I was just thinking about how um, the word fractal, like my first time about it, and therefore, <clears throat> maybe the first time that, or when it came into kind of public consciousness, I guess you could say, and uh, that, was, that was a while ago, it was what, like 20, 25 years ago, something like that. As uh, and the fractal being like the basis for life, or, or how um, things grow, you know, Fibonacci, um, <clears throat> and uh, like the idea of a spiral shell, how it grows, it always grows the same way, and that's the kind of um. Foundation, the um, model, the um, prototype, prototypical structure, Geom sacred geometry. It's called sacred geometry. And uh, yeah, that's how I think So, and, and I was just, and also I was thinking about how in the Great Scroll of Banchow, it uh, lays out the development of the word okay. Like how we started using okay. 
um, because say in other in other cultures, okay doesn't exist. Like it took a while to um, come into spoken, you know, speech in Asia. I was there when it when it did. Like when I first got there, nobody knew what okay was. It had entered the lexicon. Awareness. Hexagons in their nest. And it's all flat. Hexagons are designed to be flat. Triangles and hexagons make a flat surface. And what you need to do in order to get that surface to curve is to actually take a point out. And when you take a point out or a PSU at the space-time level, a Planck spherical unit, as Nassim calls it, the whole surface starts to curve because there's a tensegrity, a tension that in all cases, in all cases. the surface. That's right. And when you go in a geodesic dome, the only reason that that dome is able to make a curve around you is not because of the six triangles. It's because of the points where there's five. And this is something that I realized in high school is that the five and the pentagram, the pentagon, mm -hmm. is the key to gravity. It's not the six, it's not the hex, it's not the tetrahedron. If you want to understand gravity, you have to understand the Pentagon because the Pentagon creates a pole structure. Now, when I was in high school, I came across Dan Winter's work and Dan was talking about how five creates implosion and he was talking about how a pine cone's geometry is the same as the pineal gland, is the same as you know how energy moves in a spiral into a, a core. And he was thinking about it in terms of how really big energies get to really small things and back. And I thought, well, that's really interesting because if if the pentagram is required to curve space-time, then in any time you have gravity, where the planet, your protons in your body, um, a sun, a galaxy, you're going to have these places where those pentagons go through the structure in order to curve it, in order to make the curved gravitational field. And that's going to enable this sort of a uh, phi spiral perfect weave that's going to create a pattern from everything small to everything big. Why does this happen? Why does it happen? Why does it happen? I mean, who conceived of something like this? Yeah, well, now, this doesn't happen by accident. That's right. You know, if you really get down to it, you realize that that the whole universe is extremely simple. It's all trying to get into balance. But if everything is in balance already, then you don't have anything. And so you have to have things a little bit off, a little bit out of balance, moving towards balance in order to get all the dynamics, in order to get gravity. And as soon as you have gravity, you have that five spinning energy in, guess what? Those extra points that would make a six where they become the five, those have to go somewhere. And that gives us radiation. So where you have gravitation, you get radiation. Did Newton understand this? I think Newton... Um, when he saw the apple fall? I think he got some of the basics of the fact that we're in a universe where force is playing out mm -hmm. and that there's an alchemy in those forces. 
because a lot of things you know about Newton's work are not well publicized. He was an alchemist. He was studying how the forces of the universe are related to consciousness. And this is where my core work is as well, right? Because I realized you're more of a you're more of a general expert, not just a physicist, when it comes to things、mm. like this. Yeah, well, you could say I'm building a bridge between metaphysics and spirituality and hardcore science and physics. Not a lot of scientists would、uh, build that bridge with you. That's true.、Um, <clears throat> not a lot of scientists.、Uh, Basically, you know, came across energy as a teenager, and not only that, but when I discovered that energy was flowing around me, it changed my perspective, and I realized that that energy was elemental in its form. It could be like fire, air, earth, or water, and I started looking up. Well, what are the four elements, and then what's the fifth element? And I started realizing that for thousands of years, cultures around the world, spiritual traditions, have used the five-pointed star, the pentagram, to describe their relationship with space-time. And yet, this geometry—did they know they were doing this? They, they, they were it. absolutely using it as a tool to communicate, to call the rain, you know, to to put out the fire to, or to build a fire. Did it work?、Uh, it absolutely did. If it didn't, why would、uh, the Celtic peoples use it for thousands of years? Where does consciousness fit into all this?、Mm. Is there a science behind that? Absolutely, because if the same principles. That enable ancient peoples to communicate with space-time, to make the rain come, to to engage with what we call magic these days, but、right. might be just a science we don't entirely understand.、Um, and that geometry that they're doing that with is the same geometry as what creates a gravitational field. Then this tells us that there's an inherent relationship between our consciousness and how we relate to the universe and the structure of the universe itself. There's got to be a reason why the Star of David is sacred to Jewish people and found in the walls of Egypt, and yet it's mapping space-time in equilibrium. And the other geometry that I talk a lot about is the seven-pointed star, because we find that in many spiritual and metaphysical traditions, from Christianity to、uh, alchemical studies to the badges of state troopers. And the seven is related to radiation, and I believe it's related to mental processes. Well, there's a mystery teaching show on Gaia, of course,、yeah. that deals with consciousness in the quantum paradigm. Beautiful. People are talking about a shift in human evolution. What is driving this shift, and how do we steer it in a positive direction? Will it be primarily a spiritual shift, as many in the New Age believe? Will it be a purely scientific and technological shift, as many transhumanists and AI developers believe? Or will these two approaches somehow meet and work together to uplift the Earth to a more balanced and advanced future? The answers to these questions truly rest in our hands. One thing is for sure: achieving such a balance will require a core shift in how we think, act, and relate. In other words, a paradigm shift. Adam, what is a paradigm shift? I think a paradigm shift is any time we have a belief system or structure in which we're sharing with others 
culturally, communicatively with our family and friends. And it's fixed in a certain way. This is creating a certain paradigm or of understanding. But any belief system is only as good as the level of consciousness that created it. So if you couldn't see the whole picture, you may have come to a certain belief about something and held that belief strongly, and you might hold it for your whole life. And the thing is, is when you build a belief system, you stack things on top of that. If you believe you, if you do a certain thing, it's going to be evil or you're going to be judged or, you know, that this is going to happen to you in the afterlife. Or if you do this, you know, then that will happen. Then what happens is your actions and your beliefs stack on top of that belief system. And it gets to a point where if that fundamental belief system, that paradigm that you're resting on is threatened. In other words, you have new information that's trying to come in to this lens that you've got that's blocking that information out. It's like, I don't want to know it. As soon as that cracks and this opens, all the stack of all the things that you believed are going to fall. Will we ever find out with physics how to travel faster than the speed of light? Absolutely. You really think so? I do. Will we be able to use it for propulsion systems? Yes. And what does that do? It'll stop time, won't it? Well, or slow it down. If you consider the possibility that if space-time is this fundamental fabric, this lattice of light, and that every way that we're trying to move through it right now is basically like a pencil pushing through the fabric. We're, we're pushing with our rockets. You know, you hit the gas in the car, and you're literally pushing against space-time. Warp speed. G-force, right? That's what you call G-force, and it's just gravity. Sure. You're just curving space. Well... If instead of curving space and bending it by accelerating, as Einstein would say, you just create a gap where you create a bubble where you're in your own space-time and you're inside that bubble, that bubble now no longer is going to be pushing against the surrounding space. And so that bubble has the capacity to move at any speed. There is no actual speed limit to the universe unless you're pushing your way through space-time. If you stop accelerating or pushing, now there's no speed limit. Can we be, implement that in craft? That would be amazing. It would. How quickly could we get to Mars? Very Just fast. like that. Just like that. You could get to Alpha Centauri just like that. But what happens? I always heard, Adam, that when you travel like that mm. and then come back, mm. the planet may have aged 5,000 years. Ah, but that is all based on warping space-time from accelerating. So uh -huh. Einstein showed that if you accelerate enough and you warp space-time enough, as you're warping space, you're warping time, which means that accelerating to a star that's 10 light-years away and accelerating back, then even though you may be going almost the speed of light, five minutes pass for you, you get back, 20 years have passed, your wife is old. It's a bummer, right? It's a big bummer. It's a big bummer. You don't want to do it. It's not a good idea. So instead of accelerating, if you're not warping space-time, then time is consistent across your travel. Could you come back and people are younger than when you left? Ah, uh, there are some theoretical approaches to this, but again, that still, that time dilation, both going into the future, so to speak, if I go and come back and 20 years have passed, or going and coming back before I left, going into the past, 
is still based on this warp of space-time. So if you have a vehicle that's able to move without acceleration and jump through space-time, you don't have that effect either. What is it about physics that excites you? I think that we have the potential to become a species that is responsible for our planet, that is in a symbiotic relationship with our biosphere, and that has the capacity to travel the universe and interact with beings all over the galaxy. I believe that we have the opportunity right now to make a transition to becoming a galactic species and to developing a new kind of relationship and understanding with ourselves, with all life, and the rest of the universe. And physics paves the way for us to get there. Well, that's pretty profound to be able to say that like that. How do we use that in our day-to-day life to make things better? Yeah, I think cultivating our internal physics is needed to make changes in our lives. Getting to know the root chakra and its relationship to the pentagram and the sacral chakra and its relationship to the hexagram Nissim was talking about, the solar plexus and its relationship to the heptagram, understanding the geometry of space in the way that it's processed by our bodies is crucial because this is your vehicle, right? This is your spaceship. This is it. And you're in it until you leave it. Make it work. So learning how to master our capacity to use our own energetic field and develop a deeper relationship with space-time. Adam, did the ancients understand this? I believe that many ancient cultures did, and they had different perspectives on the same fundamental truths. What would you tell a physicist of the next 20 years about what you're talking about today? I would say, let go of the complexities of the standard model of quantum mechanics. It's missing so many pieces, and it's gotten so convoluted in its mathematical structures, it's keeping you from seeing the simple truth Is it faulty? about reality. It's very faulty. Yet, no physicists other than people like you are coming forward or have the guts to come forward to say that it's faulty. Why not? Well, there are, there are quite a few of us. But when you think about the structure of funding in the academic world, and you look at the fact also that you have professors and books, and they've been teaching the same thing for the past 15 or 20 years, and they want to make their next tenure. And if suddenly there's all this new physics they and they don't the understand it, yeah, if they can't if they can't publish something that meets the new physics, guess what? They lose their tenure. Or if you're CERN and you're getting ten billion dollars a year to find the Higgs boson, and someone says, "Well, actually, you don't need the Higgs boson because space time well, gives rise for. to forces," then that's ten billion dollars you're going to lose. So there's, I think, momentum keeping people from doing those deeper dives. Adam, thanks for being on Beyond the It's such a pleasure, George. Thanks for having you're me. You're a rebel physicist. You know that. I enjoy that very much. Thank you. And it's fun talking physics with you. Thank you. Beyond Belief is a program that we have developed to explore the unknown. And when you talk to physicists like Adam Apollo, you get the unknown. I'm George Norrie, and thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Make sure to sign my nominated petition form if you are 
Arizona voter, https colon slash slash gov.azsos.gov slash sf6j. Follow me Christopher Governor, Christopher Governor, Christopher Curtis, etc. 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 I'll let you hear the beginning of this. Welcome to Beyond Belief. We've got a very special guest for you, award-winning author Sonia Grace, a highly sought-after mystic healer and artist with both Norwegian and Native American heritage. As an energy surgeon and remote healer, she has been counseling an international roster of clients for more than 30 years. Sonia, welcome to Beyond Belief. Thank you, George. I'm so happy to be here. What is a healer? Well, you know, there's lots of kinds of healers. You can go to your massage therapist and get healing. You can go to an energy healer and get healing. You can go to all kinds of different modalities, acupuncturists, you know, naturopaths. The kind of healing that I do is long distance. I'm going to wherever the person is, wherever they are in the world, and I'm able to put myself in front of them and work on them as if they were right there. So I go in and repair hearts and tissue and livers and spleens. I work on cancers. I work on blood, bones, Jeez. everything. How do you know where the ailment is or do they tell you? Oh, that? they tell me, okay. they tell me, sure. And I, the more information I have, the better it is because if someone's dealing with a type of cancer, let's say, and they've had a, you know, a scan, they've already had all the tests done, then I know exactly where I'm honing in. Sometimes I see things that they haven't had scanned and I'm able to identify that as well. So right. it's kind of a, a concert. Good for you. Yeah. You're also what you, we consider a spirit traveler. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, in all the work that I do, George, every day, you know, going to where people are, I'll have a client in Australia and then I'll have a client in, you know, Sweden and then I'll have a client in L.A., uh, wherever. I'm, I'm literally spirit traveling every day. And what that means is I go into meditation and in meditation, my body dissolves. It, it just becomes like little particles of sand floating away. And when I'm going to explore a site, like a sacred site, my guides come to me and they take me and I literally travel with them back in time and we discover what happened, who built the site, why it was built. So it's, 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 it's an amazing experience. And every time I do this and I time travel, when I come back, I'm a bit discombobulated. I mean, I really know I've been somewhere because it takes me a long time to come back. You have a new book with a card system called Odin and Nine Realms. Tell me about that. And who is Odin? Odin is the Norse god who most people mm -hmm. are maybe familiar with through the Thor hello, movies hello. and the Vikings. Yeah, she gets and... a lot of hate, this woman, Son uh, Sonia Grace. But... Um... I think she has uh, incredible insights, and uh, so I defend her on, you know, the discussion areas of Gaia, which I strongly recommend. Get your subscription; it's only twelve bucks a month. That's a free Gaia plug, by the way. You're welcome, Gaia. I expect to get priority and hiring for my service.
Welcome to Beyond Belief. We've got a very special guest for you, award-winning author Sonia Grace, a highly sought-after mystic healer and artist with both Norwegian and Native American heritage. As an energy surgeon and remote healer, she has been counseling an international roster of clients for more than 30 years. Sonia, welcome to Beyond Belief. Thank you, George. I'm so happy to be here. What is a healer? Well, you know, there's lots of kinds of healers. You can go to your massage therapist and get healing. You can go to an energy healer and get healing. You can go to all kinds of different modalities, acupuncturists, you know, naturopaths. The kind of healing that I do is long distance. I'm going to wherever the person is, wherever they are in the world, and I'm able to put myself in front of them and work on them as if they were right there. So I go in and repair hearts and tissue and livers and spleens. I work on cancers. I work on blood, bones, everything. How do you know where the ailment is or do they tell you? Oh, they tell me, they tell me, sure. And the more information I have, the better it is because if someone's dealing with a type of cancer, let's say, and they've had a, a scan, they've already had all the tests done, then I know exactly where I'm honing in sometimes I see things that they haven't had scanned and I'm able to identify that as well so it's kind of a, a concert good for you yeah. you're also what you we consider a spirit traveler tell us a little bit about that yeah um, in all the work that I do George every day you know going to where people are I'll have a client in Australia and then I'll have a client in you know Sweden and I'll have a client in LA uh, wherever I'm I'm literally spirit traveling every day And what that means is I go into meditation and in meditation, my body dissolves. It it just becomes like little particles of sand floating away. And when I'm going to explore a site, like a sacred site, my guides come to me and they take me. And I literally travel with them back in time and we discover what happened who built the site why it was built so it's 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 an amazing experience and every time I do this and I time travel when I come back I'm a bit discombobulated I mean I really know I've been somewhere because it takes me a long time to come back you have a new book with a card system called Odin and Nine Realms tell me about that and who is Odin Odin is the Norse god who most people are maybe familiar with through the Thor movies and the Vikings and various shows that have been out. Um, This book is a very comprehensive um, display of Norse mythology. And it's also my interpretation of the Norse gods, their magic, the ruins, and the nine realms. And it's all built in a 54-card oracle that I did all the artwork for. Okay, well, we have a little video to display this. My name is Sonia Grace. I am a mystic healer of both Norwegian and Native American heritage. In my spirit travels, I have visited Stoppelsteinen, and Hungradfelt stone, both ancient stone circles in Norway, where the Norse gods gave me instructions to create an oracle. We traveled through the nine realms where I met the Norns, fire giants, elves, dwarves, and the gods. 
I created the artwork for each of the 54 cards, and I wrote the words spoken to me by the gods, Odin, Thor, Baldur, Loki, Freya, Frigg, and Ron. All share messages of love, fear, purpose, power, medicine, and energy, revealing new insights into the human experience. In this oracle, the runes reveal powerful messages. The magic of Norse mythology are the elements that guide even the gods. Deepen your connection to spirit and follow your life's path with the ancient wisdom of this powerful divination tool wow, called Odin and the Nine Realms. And in a little bit on Beyond Belief, I'm going to pick several of these cards, and Sonia's going to tell me a little bit about myself. They're a little like tarot cards, aren't they? They are. They are. It's an oracle, but you can, you know, you can use it in any way. There's lots of different card spreads that I gave in the book. Mm -hmm. You can also just pick a card, ask a question, pick a card. How did you key in on Norse mythology? You know, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. And my dad's parents and my father all came from Norway. So a lot of the influence uh -huh. in my childhood there was you hearing Norwegian and, you know, everybody eating Norwegian food all the time. So it really obviously shaped my life as well as my Native American heritage. And I decided it was a really great opportunity to connect with Norse mythology, but more importantly, George, the gods, the Norse gods came to me and asked me to do this oracle. Oh, really? Yeah. And how did they come to you? When I when I traveled, I spirit traveled first to a stone circle called Castle Rig that's in the UK. And when I went there physically and in my spirit travels, I saw Bitfrost, the, 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 the bridge between Midgard and Asgard. And I saw the Norse gods coming through the stone circle. Interesting. So the, when all of this was taking place, it was 10,000 BC, and it was the beginning of a new phase of humanity. All these portals opened up all over the earth, and the gods started coming through, the demigods. Is that a good thing? Yeah, because they're the ones that help shape humanity. The Egyptian gods shaped, you know, those people. The Norse gods shaped the... Greeks. The, yes, the Greek gods, the Mayan gods, the Hopi gods. So all of these demigods came through to Earth. And the Norse gods came through Castle Rig. And they discovered that the Pleiadians, who are also demigods, were there. So they went from Castle Rig over to Stoppelsteinen, which is a stone circle there in Norway. And they, and they shaped the people there in Scandinavia. When I say shaped, I mean they taught them ceremonies, they cross-pollinated with them. They basically helped recreate people. Now these stone circles like Stoppelsteinen in Norway, what are they for? They're portals. They're all right. portals. That's like yeah. Castle. Great stuff. This is called Reawakening the Norse with Sonia Grace. Incredible. Um, talk to you later. Bye. Bye.